Hi, I'm Jeremy Wagner, proud to be the general manager of the new Nissan Lloydminster. The new Lloydminster Nissan will soon be moving into a new location, with construction on our new building underway right now. While our location is changing, you can still expect the same great service and professionalism from the new Lloydminster Nissan. We're proud to support the community through a one-of-a-kind live broadcast with Kurt Price that focuses on events, people, and issues that concern our community and area. We're proud to work with other businesses to promote local agriculture, our heavy oil industry, and entrepreneurs. We give back to the community through sponsorships like the Lloyd X Grill, the Nissan Hall, as well as the CPCA Finals and the North American Chuck Wagon Championship. Our employees are encouraged and excited to volunteer in the community. And of course, we're here with our fantastic lineup of new Nissan vehicles and our extensive new to you lineup, which is just as impressive. We're proud to be the new Lloydminster Nissan, and we look forward to seeing you here today and at our new location very soon. At the new Nissan Lloydminster, where we won't sell you a car, we'll help you buy one. This is Lloydminster Show. This is local that matters to you. Local people. Local events. Local news and sports. For Lloydminster and area, this is Live with Kurt Price from the new Lloydminster Nissan. Hey, welcome inside the new Lloydminster Nissan. We are excited today to bring you another edition of Patchwork. And our guest today is the president of Original Oil, Dustin Newman, is joining us on the show uh, today. New Lloydminster Nissan, we're winding down summer here, which means the summer fun wheel is winding down. It's your last chance to spin the wheel as we have a couple days left in August here. You can spin the summer fun wheel for a chance to win some great summer prize packages. There's golf packages, meat packages, barbecue packages packages, gas packages, and uh, we're going to wind that down as we head into the long weekend here. So get into the new Lloyd Mr. Nissan, check out our great selection of new and pre-owned vehicles, and uh, with your purchase, you get to spin the summer fun wheel. We also have meals in the fields happening right now at the new Lloyd Mr. Nissan with some of our fantastic sponsors, including Sobeys Lloydminster, Diamond 7 Meats, The Tent Guys, Vico Agro, and the Gary Melka Foundation. The Gary Melka Foundation came on board last year, wanted to give back to farmers in the Midwest. And so we will be doing that again this year by nominating a farmer you are entered to win a quarter of beef, and there are two of those to give away, so a full side of beef will be uh, given away. And tomorrow's winner is Daryl and Dean Davidson. So we're heading out to Triple X Farms near Kid Scotty to deliver a fantastic meal tomorrow. And uh, we want to thank once again all of our great sponsors and keep those nominations coming in. There's still three more to go, and then the draws for the beef. For disaster help, call BioClean Disaster Services. They can help with water damage, wind damage, also fire damage, of course, mold or asbestos contamination, and what you don't think of very often when you think about this area possibly is BioClean Disaster Services offers asbestos contamination, drug cleanup, and a whole lot more. They're committed to getting your property back to where it was in better shape than it was before the disaster, and they're going to keep you informed along the way so you want urgent care they're going to provide that you want tender care as well not only for your possessions but for your family as well you want to be keep you want them to keep you up to date they're going to do that so for respectful professional and urgent care called bioclean disaster services jody herbis is the master of disaster 
26. Well, Tracy Kay is not uh, here today. Uh, Tracy's father passed away, so we want to send our condolences to Tracy and uh, his entire family and uh, say that we are thinking about Tracy because we definitely are. And we're missing him on the show today as well. I know that he really wanted to be here to talk to uh, Dustin. It is a show that Tracy set up. Uh, Tracy contacted Dustin originally and said, we'd love to have you uh, come down here today. So we just want to make sure Tracy knows that we are thinking about him and his entire family today. Uh, yesterday was the groundbreaking of the Sonovas Energy Hub, and uh, we were out there for that. Uh, they had a nice little thing at Center Ice for everybody to take a picture with, which was pretty cool. And then they had the Good Deeds Cup winners help with the groundbreaking. So that's Kent Miller there from Sonovas Energy. And of course, MLA Colleen Young and Mayor Gerald Albers. Sonovas Energy contributing $5 million for the naming rights of the new arena, which is expected to be uh, open in 2025 and expected to be much more than just an arena. Well, Tracy's not here to give you the oil prices, but I'll do my best. WTI is down slightly uh, this morning to $80.99. Western Canadians slacked up to 63.01, and the Canadian rig count 419 with 184 active, and the U.S. rig count at 632. Dustin Newman, the president of Original Oil, joins us next here on Patchwork. Spin to win this summer at the new Lloydminster Nissan. Check out our outstanding summer lineup of new and pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. And with more and more new vehicles arriving, the new Lloydminster Nissan is adding more choice to our already sensational selection. Choose your new ride and spin the summer sun wheel to win great prizes like barbecues, meat packages for the grill, golf passes, and more. Let the summer fun begin with your new ride from the new Lloydminster Nissan. The new Lloydminster Nissan. We won't sell you a car. We'll help you buy one. It's more than just taxes at LNA CPA. Assurance, accounting, retirement planning, estate planning, business consulting, financial consulting, farm program support, and bookkeeping. But yes, there is always taxes. The team at LNA CPA is committed to helping you achieve your best results and will be there to assist you every step of the way. LNA CPA offices in Provost, Vermilion, and Lloydminster. At Jason Arden and Associates Cooperators, we're proud to be a top-rated local insurance company that offers flexible solutions and expert advice for all your insurance and investment needs. We'll work with you to tailor your insurance specific to your needs, and we offer investment advice that always puts you first. At Cooperators, one of our core values is to support the communities we live in. When you support Jason Arden and Associates Cooperators, you are supporting local nonprofits and initiatives. Since 2020, we have donated 60,000 to local nonprofits, youth sponsorships, and various special projects. When was the last time your insurance company did that? How can you help support the oil and gas industry and jobs in Western Canada? The answer is closer than you think. Sell your scrap metals to PWM Steel. PWM sells scrap iron to Evraz, located in Regina. Evraz's number one customer is the energy sector, building pipes and plates for the oil and gas industry. PWM Steel is your locally owned metal recycler and steel service center in the area. Plus, they're a strong supporter of the community. PWM Steel, your top steel supplier for Alberta and Saskatchewan for 40 years. At Diamond 7 Meats, we work with local farm families to provide a high-quality product and a great selection for you. Try our mouth-watering Smokies, pulled pork, roast beef, and more. Made pure and natural with no additives or fillers. We offer custom processing, and our experienced team works for you to provide a selection of sausage, burgers, and jerkies made to your specifications. Take your grilling to the next level with a Yoder Smoker. 
complete the grilling experience with a Canadian-made, award-winning line of House of Q barbecue sauces. We're locally owned and operated, and we look forward to seeing you today. Welcome back to Patchwork here at the new Lloydminster Nissan. And we are excited that uh, Dustin Newman has joined us today on Patchwork. If this is your first time joining us on the program, uh, we are very pro-Canadian oil and gas. We're pro-oil and gas. We're not against renewables, but we are pro-Canadian oil and gas when it comes to using a product that we believe is superior. And Dustin Newman, I know, joins me uh, in believing that as well. So it is uh, great to see you. It's good to see you again, Kurt. Thanks for being here, Dustin. And Dustin has been here before because uh, he's uh, so involved in uh, Kids Got a Community, really. Yep. And uh, has been on the program uh, quite a bit to promote their new curling rink, which is turning into a multiple-use facility as well. So, for sure. But today we're going to talk oil and gas. We're going to talk about Dustin's uh, career in oil and gas. He grew up on a farm uh, near Hillmont, Saskatchewan, and uh, didn't want to take over the family farm, Dustin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think I was always meant to be an engineer so um fairly well it actually took me to high school to figure it out even though all i liked was math and science in school someone at the school said you know you should be an engineer and i went well what's that and they told me i'm like oh yeah no that sounds sounds like a great idea so i was i was a natural fit to be an engineer for sure so take me back to growing up on the the family farm near, near hillmond you got three brothers you got one sister yeah and uh the boys love hockey Take us through what it was like growing well, up. Well, the, the boys love sports uh, in general, and uh, I kind of laugh now because my son's a lot like me, and uh, he'd rather sit and read and maybe solve puzzles, games, that kind of thing. But I had an older brother that um, wouldn't let me sit there. Essentially, he loved playing hockey and ball and all the rest of it, and uh, and so he'd convinced my mom that he needed someone to play with. I was the next youngest brother, so all I did growing up was play hockey and ball. And and uh, I kind of laugh now because yeah, I would have just sat there and read or or you know, like I said, played games or something like that. But uh, and then you got two younger brothers, so then it becomes a full on you know hockey game or ball game, any kind of sport, pretty much year round. So yeah, so it's a. Uh it's a counselor or a guidance counselor or something that tells you, Hey, yeah, it, I think it was a guidance counselor. And I think it was grade 11. Uh, I remember talking to her and it was obvious as obvious can be to her. I had no clue. I'm like, I don't know what Is I want to do. Yeah. I was at the comp. Yeah. I came to the comp in grade 10 and, uh, I can't remember who it was, but anyhow, she just said, well, what do you like? I'm like, well, I love math. I love science. Uh, she's like, what are, what are your interests? I'm like, well, I like sports, but you know, like solving puzzles, that kind of thing. And she's like, "Well, you're, you're, you need to go into engineering." And I'm like, "Okay, I don't like. I don't remember having the conversation with my parents at all." But um, as soon as I told them, they're like, "Well, yeah, you know." I think everybody kind of knew, but when you're a young guy, you have no idea what you're destined to be or what it, you know, what your skills lend themselves towards. So, so when you go, where did you go? U of S. U of A. U of A. U of A. Okay. Yeah. So when you go to U of A, are you thinking oil and gas at that time? What are you thinking? You know what's quite honestly, I uh, I wasn't thinking oil and gas at all. Uh, that wasn't my, actually wasn't my first choice in my first year. Because um, after your first year of study, uh, you rate your choices of what you want to be. And uh, I, I put in for engineering physics. I had a, a really good looking prof in engineering physics in my first year. And I put in for that. But that's, it's a good thing I didn't go into that. That's like the brainiest of the brainiest uh, engineers. And, uh, so you end up working for like NASA and stuff? Yeah, that's essentially yeah. where you go towards the stuff like that. You're yeah. solving very complex, you know, 
physics problems that you know don't even make sense to 90% of the engineers essentially so, so when you're watching Big Bang Theory you actually get what they're writing on the board yeah well me no not right now but if I would have went that route that's, <laughs> that's what it would have that's yeah. where you're headed towards right and so my second choice was petroleum engineering and uh, it's probably for the best that it it went that way quite honestly and uh, well and that's how I ended up back in, in Lloyd so there was a little bit of you know I guess I got lucky but but it worked out well for me in the end so so you're thinking petroleum, you're thinking that's going to take me back to Lloyd because I want to get back to Lloyd? No, I didn't want to go back to Lloyd at all. That wasn't my, you know, growing up in, around Lloydminster, it wasn't my plan to come back to Lloyd at all. Um, for some reason, you find your hometown once you leave, you're like, oh, it's just Lloyd, right? I want to go somewhere bigger and better. Or, you know, you got big ambitions or big ideas of where somewhere better is. And so I never planned on coming back to Lloydminster at all. Uh, I ended up here, but that was that was never really the plan for sure, so... You know, it's interesting, David Yeager, when he was speaking at the uh, heavy oil conference here in Lloydminster at the, at, the, at the supper, he said, I don't think there's a better place in the world right now to live than Lloydminster. And he listed off all the things we have here, yep. including our housing is pretty reasonable compared to the rest of the country. And, you know, he makes a lot of sense. But there you are saying, I don't really want to come back to Lloyd because there's bigger and better places. Did you, like when you were in high school, were you aware of what a big role oil and gas plays in the economy in, in this area? I had no idea. And quite honestly, I was oblivious to it until I started running Original Oil, really. Like as an engineer and working for Husky or Petrovera, um, you just really don't get a sense of how uh, integrated and how important it is for the area. And it wasn't until you're, you know, you're actually running a company and, and looking where all the money's going and that you're like, oh, like that's a huge, and I'm, you know, Original Oil is a very small company compared to some like Synovus or some of these other big companies. But you get, start to get a sense of, oh, you know, it's very important to the area. It's very integrated into the area. Um, it's a major driver in the whole area for sure. So, so take us back to <clears throat> your first job in oil and gas. You, your first job isn't, uh, you're not even out of U of A yet. No, my first summer actually. So I took a co-op program in university, which means uh, my program took five years instead of four, but I do work terms in between my school years uh, for other four or eight months. Now, my first uh, job was in between my first and second year for four months, and I actually worked at Husky. I had a friend, uh, Steve Breen, who I was in university with, and uh, he took me, uh, He his dad worked at Husky, and, and I got a job as a a summer student out at the Marwayne Battery, or not Marwayne, uh, Mervyn Battery for Husky, and I worked there for four months. And then uh, my second work term, I worked for a pipeline company, actually Trans Mountain Pipeline. Okay. Uh, I worked as a summer uh, a co-op student there in Edmonton. And uh, so that's obviously the pipeline that goes from uh, Edmonton all the way out to uh, um Vancouver, essentially. So I worked there for eight months. And then I worked four months down in Calgary for uh, a small gas company. And then my last work term, my last eight months, I came to Lloyd and worked for Petrovera. Um, that last work term kind of set up the future for me. Uh, but I really took that job on a whim. Uh, I honestly didn't like the other engineering roles I'd taken in university. Uh, they didn't interest me that much. Uh, the Calgary work, being in Calgary was fun, but the work itself didn't interest me. And uh, the job in Lloydminster I took at Petrovera um, was for production engineering, which I hadn't done yet. And uh, once I got to Lloyd and started learning from some very interesting and competent people, the work became interesting. And that's what drew me back after university, back to Lloydminster. 
So how long did you, how long were you at Petrovere? Uh, eight months before I graduated, and then I only I was only there for like a year. I can't remember a year and a bit after I graduated because Petrovere eventually sold to CNRL, um, and they actually wanted to move me back to Calgary. But that's a different story. But I only worked there for eight months, and then a year after. But it was very those years were very formative and. Uh, just the quality of people that work there and, and learning skills and problem solving and testing things out and, you know, just learning in general. So I'm curious when you went to Calgary, even when you're living in Edmonton and you're like, I don't want to come back to Lloydminster. Then when you start doing your co-ops, were you starting to think, Hey, Lloydminster isn't such a bad place or were you, were, when you were in Calgary, think, cause, cause you had an opportunity to go back Calgary. And you, oh, well, you I've, I've had, I've had numerous chances to go back to Calgary. And what's funny is when you're a young guy, you know, when I was like 21 living in Calgary, it was a lot of fun and I kind of wanted to go back there. Um, but the work that I did there just I didn't, you know, that role, I was doing reservoir engineering, which just didn't interest me all that much. I found it too repetitive and uh, boring, essentially. So it just wasn't for me. And uh, so the work out in Lloyd, you know, is what originally brought me here. And it's what helped me stay here as well. Um, The problem you have in Calgary, and the reason why I didn't move back there was you're a long ways away from the well. And so what's actually happening out in the field, what's going on with the well itself, sometimes hard to determine or or you don't get to see things as much. And uh, being in Lloydminster, what's really nice about it is you're a short distance away from any of the work that's going on in the field. So anytime you want to go out and, and see what's actually going on and have a discussion with the rig guys or have a discussion with, you know, cementers, perforators, anything like that, you can have those discussions. You can see exactly what they're doing. You can see the challenges they have because sometimes that doesn't get relayed to the office and that's the probably one of the best things about Lloyd is you're just so close to everything um, so you know that's that's what drew, drew me back here there's a bunch of other reasons why I stayed later but uh, that's what initially drew me back for sure so you mentioned Petrovera you're working with some very smart people tell us about those Petrovera months that you were there and who you were working with uh, so um, some of the you know important people for the industry around Lloydminster work there for sure. So you're talking about people like Cedric Gall, who, who taught me an immense amount, uh, just on doing your homework, doing the research, thinking through the problem, analyzing the problem, uh, trying different things out. Um, a lot of people, you know, I want, you know, certain people don't do anything different ever. They do the same thing over and over, but, but Cedric wasn't a guy like that. He was willing to try things and fail and, and see if he could solve problems. Uh, someone like Jack, Bootsman was very uh, important. He ran all the rigs over at Petrovera and, uh, you know, he'd get to the root source of problems and uh, he had a good relationship with the rig guys in the field. Um, Shane Friesen worked there. He became the head of uh, Husky and Lloyd for a while, the engineering department. So he was a very intelligent man. Uh, and then a bunch of the field staff were just fantastic. Uh, Rick Blanchett and Damian Bealish and, and names like that, that, you know, you got to interact with and work with. They just taught you an immense amount um and then you know they the guys would take you out to the field or take you to the shops and you learn about tools from different companies tracy k's being one of them triton being one of them you just go to some of these companies and they'd actually see the tools see how they work and and so you actually have an idea of what's going on as a you know the the basic of what's going on as opposed to guessing all the time so so basically you're a problem solver Yes. At Petrovera. Yes. So they, they want to bring you back, but you, you don't come back. 
No, I actually came back uh, right out of what happened was I worked that eight months and then I signed a contract with him in my last year of university. And I came back for, for about a year uh, to Petrovere and Lloyd. I would have stayed longer because I liked working for Petrovere and I learned a lot, but Petrovere actually sold the CNRL okay. at that point. And so CNRL took over Petrovere and I didn't stay on with CNRL because they wanted their engineers in Calgary. And uh, I decided that I wasn't ready to make that move yet. And I wasn't sure what my future was, but uh, I didn't want to move to Calgary yet. So I actually went traveling at that point for nine months in Southeast Asia and Australia because I always wanted to do that. And it was kind of, the, that break allowed me to go, well, if there's something you want to do right now, what is that? And I, I decided traveling was it. And, uh, you, you know, if I'd stayed working at Pedro I wouldn't have had that opportunity because you're not going to quit your job. Yeah. But that kind of gave me a break to do that. So so why, the, why Southeast Asia and Australia? Um... I wanted to go somewhere somewhere different. I had a cousin living in Hong Kong, so that seemed like a part of the world that, you know, I kind of knew someone to ease me into it for sure. Um, Australia is fairly close there, and I could get a work visa to go work there for part of the time. So, so you worked in Australia? Yeah, I did a uh, sheep station for uh, three months. I picked some tomatoes for a bit, which was awful. I picked corn for a bit, which was actually pretty good, um, and then traveled around some. So, yeah, I did work in Australia for a while. Okay, that's that's interesting. Like um, picking tomatoes in Australia, I had no idea, Dustin, that you did that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think my mom wasn't too happy with me because I was an engineer and I was doing all these, you know, working on a sheep station, fencing and chasing sheep around and picking corn. And she's like, "What? What is my son doing? Like, he's an engineer for God's sake, do engineering work." But uh, um, what did we pay for? No, no, exactly. But uh, what's funny about that is uh, I never um, the. The manual labor, uh, every once in a while, it's really good to go back to because it, you know, if you're inside your head all the time solving problems, it's good. But understanding how stuff works in the world, getting you know, getting your hands dirty, using your hands, it it helps relate, you know, what you think's going on with the world with what's actually going on in the world. So even if it's something like picking corn, well, what are the steps? Actually do them, figuring it out, you know, uh, there's a lot of value there. Not, you know. For me, I couldn't do it long term, but for a short period of time, it made a lot of sense. So, so you decide to move back to Canada, and not only back to Canada, but back to Lloydminster. Yeah. So after that, I actually you came. You must have had opportunities to go wherever you wanted to. Go. So what happened when I came back from Australia? I was homesick, and I I came home after the nine months. Um, and I was at that point, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I kind of want to travel more, but if you go back to an engineering job, that's not a short term job. I wanted to I wanted to go traveling more essentially um, so I looked around I'm like well what am I gonna do to make some money in the short term that I find interesting uh, then I can make some money doing so I can go traveling again so what I chose to do I walked into high West well servicing at that point uh, and asked if I could work on the rigs I knew some of the guys that worked there um, uh, home was one of them and I asked if they'd let me work on the rigs for a bit and I knew them uh, I know Colby man and and that was his son so he said yeah we'll put you on for a bit he knew I was an engineer he knew exactly what I was doing but at the same time I'm sure he was sitting there going you know having an engineer that's worked on the rigs is always a good thing and so I went and worked on uh, service rig for six months uh, around Lloydminster and then eventually up on the bombing range in a camp job and again my mom was not <laughs> was not happy with me one bit she saw the rigs as a dangerous place she's like what are you doing like it's dangerous you know you should be doing engineering work that's your degree and uh, 
but I worked on the service rigs for six months. What was and, life like at that time? Like, what, what was working on the rigs like at that time? I mean, we're into the 2000s. Like, like. So, um, well, and it's still the same now. The service rig guys are rough. You know, they'll get after you, you know, anything to get under your skin. Uh, my first day on the rigs up at the bombing range, I was not a big kid. I was, you know, I was in shape, but I was not really strong. And I'd never done, you know, hard manual labor before. And I was trying to do something and I couldn't do it. And some old rig hand came up to me and said, you know, I'm not looking for excuses. I'm looking for results and walked away. Really? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to say about that, obviously. And I, I was like, God, do I quit after a comment like that? Right. But I stuck with it and you get stronger and, and more competent as you go along and you'll like being an engineer who directs service rigs around it was probably one of the most important positions i ever i ever worked because it actually made sense what i was telling the rig crew to do versus what was actually getting done it starts to make those connections so that down the road when you're doing something you actually understand what's going on with the service rig and the hazards and the dangers and the mistakes to get made not because it's you know someone was trying to do something wrong but because something happened and you know safety all those things were actually hands-on on the rig uh so I worked on the rigs for six, six months and like up north in the bombing range, I was working, I think a 12 and three schedule where you work 12, 12 hour days in a row and three days off. And, uh, so winter, I, summer, uh, that was summertime up there. I did work on the winter, uh, around Lloydminster, but it was summertime when I worked there and, uh, it was hard work, uh, 12 hour days and, and not much time off. So I'd come back to Lloyd and I, I just saved money for, for like six months because I, I didn't do anything outside of work you just work uh especially when you're on in a camp job up on the bombing range like three days off you're sleeping on the couch yeah well and i you know some of the guys they get into other extracurriculars that i was working with and i didn't really <laughs> fit in with that but you know i come back and i might have a six pack of beer one night but you're tired you're recouping you might see you know but i didn't really see anyone i didn't have a girlfriend like i'd come home and do just a little bit and then you're back to work and that was you know months on end i remember a 21 day stretch 12 hour days and and there was a certain point where uh work became everything almost like it was a 14 or 15 day mark where where you just become a robot almost uh to the work and, and you get into this routine where almost nothing else matters um how much respect do you have for the guys that do that? Oh, an immense amount of respect. And uh, because I know how hard the work is. And, and, and quite honestly, um, I talk to the guys that work for me quite a bit on the rig because I know they have knowledge that lots of guys don't even, you know, oh, they're just riggers. They don't know anything. But they've done it a lot of times. And so if you talk to them and listen to them, they'll, they'll tell you stuff that uh, you'll you, learn. You'll, you'll learn for sure. And so sometimes when I'm all the time, I'll talk to those guys and say, look, I'm trying to do this. This is how I think we should do it. And they go, no, 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 don't do that. Do this. It'll work better. It'll go quicker, less problems. And you go, okay, well, you guys have been around here. Not that I follow them a hundred percent of the time, but, but they've got a lot of knowledge just from doing the work all the time for sure. So, so there's there's some bitterness out there toward towards some rig workers to, to some guys driving big dump trucks and stuff like that. I hear it from educated guys, teachers, all kinds of people I've heard from. And they, they're kind of I find they're kind of bitter towards those guys. They see these guys living in nice houses, but they don't have that second education. A lot of them don't have their grade 12. 
and they get kind of like, why is that guy making $35, $40 an hour doing manual labor? Because it's hard work. Because it's hard, yeah. It is hard work. Exactly. But what, what do you think of when, when, when like, you, you must hear the same thing sometimes oh. from some of these educated guys who've never been in the oil field that just sit beside a desk, they're kind of tree huggers, and they go, well, we got to shut down oil and gas, but... And especially these guys that are, you know, look at this guy. He's got a nice trailer and everything. He's got a nice house. He's got two quads. He's got a boat. Yep. And here I am, and I'm trying, and I can't get there, and they're bitter. Yes. Well, I, and I, you know, I try not to worry too much about the people who think that way. I know why they think that way. They go, well, that person's not smart. But That's exactly what I get. It's so condescending. No, absolutely. And what you find out, um, like my dad and brother run a, a service company in town, and, and my dad used to run a drive long haul, was a farmer, you know, and so I, I saw the manual labor side. I've worked the manual labor side. And, and some of those guys, you know, they don't have the degree or the education, let's say, behind it, but they're very good at what they do, and they understand problems, maybe not in a, you know, they don't think through problems let's, like I would, let's say, having gone through university. Having said that, there's a ton of knowledge there because they've, they've used the, their hands. They've done the work. They have intimate knowledge of success and failure. And I think some people fail to realize that when you're in a, you're, you're in a desk job is you kind of get separated from the reality of what happens in the real world, in the field. And, and I see that often now. And the people who actually work with their hands, and it, it not only extends to oil and gas, but let's say a plumber or you know someone who has immediate feedback to what they're doing, there's an immense amount of knowledge there where they go, don't do that, do this. Because I've been down that road numerous times right. and, it, and it's just gonna lead to problems. If you do this, it'll go smoother. Um, and just being able to get stuff done in the field. Like if it's so easy and you think that, you know, that guy is a dumb idiot because he's making 40 bucks an hour working on a rig, let's say, well, get out of your desk and go try it. Yeah. Cause I guarantee you it's a lot harder than you think. And you might not, you might not make it like seriously. There's lots of guys who try the rigs and find out right away that it's way harder than it's they think. And they don't, yeah. they don't, you know, they quit essentially because it is as hard as what it is. So, um, you know, you might not, you know, you, and there's some guys that work in the rigs or some of those things that are, you know, that are idiots or whatever they're, but that goes for any industry. So, you know, they're hardworking people who, who earn what they earn, what they do. And if there's more people that wanted to do it, you know, by all means, give it a try. That That's such a great comment, Dustin, because I, I like even my dad working on the railroad, I hear that from him. I've, I've heard that from him. I don't know how many times where he'll say that some, he always calls him young shot, young hot shot, wants to do things this way. Yeah. Doesn't realize that six months from now, you're going to have major problems yes. down the road. We've done that before. Yeah. But he won't listen to me. He won't, you know, I, I can't, ex I, I'm trying to tell him, well, this is going to lead to this. This is going to lead to this. This is going to lead to this. Being there and doing that, like, I can't imagine, like, you, you said it yourself, how much better of an engineer that's made you. Oh, tons better. Uh, I, I think it's, if, if people were smart when they, when they got out of, you know, university like that, they go do something hands-on because it really connects your brain between the reality of the situation and how you think a situation works. I actually look at society as a whole right now, and I think that's a major problem is there's too many people working desk jobs that have never done anything in the real world with their hands. And so they have all these opinions of, oh, we should do this. We should make our whole grid, our electricity grid, solar and wind. And it's like, yeah, but you don't understand the practical aspect of that and how it'll never work. Like yeah. it just will never work. 
So if you, you know, you have all these strong opinions, but you've never actually had to deal with the real, you know, actually build something with your hands. Understand that sometimes unknowns come up and cause problems and you're going to have to figure out how to manage those problems and, and going in, know that you can't know everything and that you're going to have to find solutions on the fly and going in, you want to minimize the amount of unknowns you're going to have to deal with. So well, working with uh, working with my uncle some of the summers, and watching my other uncle, who was his mechanic, Jimmy rig stuff up, was mm-hmm. always amazing to me. Going like, "What are we gonna do now? Like, like there's no way we're getting this bolt off, or or something like that, or how are we gonna get at that because it's broke?" And he, Jimmy rigs a tool up that we're that's gonna work. Like that always amazed me. I had so much respect for that. Well, and I, I tell you what, being around farmers like my dad and my father-in-law, being around riggers, and their their ability to find solutions very quickly on the fly. Yeah. Like, you know, and stupid stuff. You know, you're talking about this bolt won't come off. Like yeah. that happens all the time. Now you can try and do things to prevent that from happening, but once it happens, what do you do? And the first time you're looking at it, you you know. Like, what, what do you do? Like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, it, it yeah. should come off, but it's not. And that's just a simple, simple problem. But someone who's, you know... Yeah, if your torque wrench won't get it off, what are we going to do? No, no, exactly, well, I'm right? the guy panicking. Well, torque wrench can't get it off. Yes. We're going to get it off manually. Yeah, well, I know a guy that, uh, that works on the rig I use, like Tony. You, you know, Tony and Dan, they've got all sorts of ideas. They just do stuff. And you're like, well, how are we going to do that? They're like, ah, don't worry, we'll got it. And, and it's like... I don't have that knowledge sitting at a desk and I know I don't. And so I treat with those guys with respect because they know how to do stuff. I don't know how to do. So that must be interesting. You're working on a rig knowing it's not going to be for you forever. Right. Like, so when do you, when do you decide, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to get back to engineering. I'm going to get, and and looking for the right thing that fits you. So uh, once I uh, worked the rigs for six months, I'd always planned to go traveling again. So I went traveling again for three months down in South America with a friend. And uh, once I got done that, then I started poking around again for, for engineering work, essentially. And uh, I did just a little bit of consulting. At a were you co- looking for a wife down in South America? What were you? <laughs> <laughs> Are you uh, still single at this time? I'm still single still at this single. time. Okay. And okay. Uh, I did see a girl or two that uh, caught my eye, but uh, I didn't drag them back to, to Lloydminster or anything. So That's a different podcast. <laughs> That's a different podcast. Yeah. Um, but I, I moved back to Lloyd and then I started poking around just to see what was out there and, and started looking for a job. I did a little bit of consulting at that po- point for a company called Buffalo and uh, actually played poker for about three months online, which my mom was not happy about as well. Um, <laughs> actually made a little bit of money doing that. But When uh, does your mom become proud of you? We'll, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. I don't know. Is she yet? <laughs> um so you're playing poker. Yeah. You're doing some consulting work. Yes. And then, uh, and then a job opened up at Husky. And uh, I went in, and, and what's funny about that is, well, and you find this throughout life, is people you've worked with in the past moving to different positions. And Shane Friesen, I'd worked some with at Petrovera, and he was now the head of engineering at, uh, at Husky. And I went in and saw him and, and uh, talked to him, and he, uh, you know, I got a job there, essentially. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't 
should also mention that I, I ended up going biking across Canada. Uh, I've worked for a couple months and then went biking across Canada, which, which, uh, Husky allowed me to do. So, um, did you know, like, did you tell them before you, yeah, hey, I've so got this plan. I actually, uh, I was talking to my brother, Sean at that point and he was playing hockey down South, uh, or playing hockey out uh, in Ontario. And we were talking the one day and this is before I applied at Husky and we came out this harebrained scheme to go biking across Canada. And so we were going to do it that summer. So what are you guys just talking or like, we well, should do it. Like, just throwing, throwing stuff around. We had a cousin who biked in the mountains when he was, a um, you know, early twenties. We thought that was really cool. And then we started talking we're like, well, why don't we just bike across Canada? We're like, yeah, okay, let's just do that. Right. It was just kind of, I don't know, off the wall kind of thing. Right. And uh, so when I went in and interviewed for the job at, at uh, Husky with Shane, I said, here's the thing, Shane, I've already, I've already committed to Sean to bike across Canada this summer. That's like two, three months away, something like that. I said, well, you know, if that, if you decide not to give me the job, that's fine. I understand. If you want me until I go biking, that's also fine. I can live with that. Or if you guys want, you can have me until I go biking. And then when I come back, I'll stay on with you guys long-term. And, uh, Shane said, no, that's fine. You can, you can go do your trip and, and come back. So yeah. yeah. How long did that take? How long did the bike cross Canada take? 69 days. Okay. So a couple months, a little over a couple months. Yeah. A couple of, just over a couple months. And it would have taken me a hell of a lot longer, but okay. <laughs> you, you find for me like you guys pushed it, but, uh, what you find out, cause we had short days at the start is, uh, it takes like two weeks to three weeks for your body to adjust. And then it almost becomes routine where that's just what you do and your body figures it out and away you go. Right. So the, the start was very slow and my brother thought we were never going to make it. And, and then, and then you start getting into a rhythm and you just go and you just adjust to it all. So, so just, I, I'm kind of curious about this bike ride. What, what you guys see, where you sleep, that kind of stuff. Like so how long you, like, did you take any down days anywhere to kind of no, no, take we, anything in? Yeah, no, we, we took some down days, especially at the start. Cause your body was hurting essentially. Cause, uh, just trying, trying to adjust. So we did take some down days, um, more at the start. And then once in a while we'd take a day off and, as we went across we went to Atlanta, Canada came back. Yeah. So we flew yeah. out to Newfoundland and, and went this way. We were worried about starting in like Vancouver and, and hitting the Coca-Cola and being like, <laughs> okay, we're not doing this. <laughs> Screw this. We're toast. Yeah. Um, so we flew out to St. John's and then biked uh, from Atlanta, Canada over to uh, Vancouver, essentially. Um, we decided before we went that we weren't going to tent it because we thought, you know what, if you're biking 120 kilometers in a day, I don't want to set up a tent. I want to shower. You want to soak. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we decided to hotel it the whole way across. Um, but when you're biking, you know, you kind of pick up whatever hotels on the highway. And so we stayed at some pretty, pretty <laughs> sketchy pretty places. places. Yes. yes. There's uh there was one place in uh, Quebec. We stayed at right along the highway and uh, we should have known before going in there because they're, they were advertising triple X movies on the sign out front, which is never, you yeah. know, it's kind of a seedy place already. <laughs> yeah. and then we walk in and uh, there's bulletproof glass between us and the guy who's checking us in. Like, <laughs> And then we get into our room and we look out the window and there's, there's this old lady pulling a wagon. She was a cleaning lady and, uh, she had a cigarette dangling out of her, out of her mouth. And she's pulling this, this children's wagon with cleaning supplies in it. And you're like, <laughs> I'm starting to think, have I really lived? Cause I've never stayed in a place with bulletproof glass in it. 
Oh, and there's another place, dude. The worst that wasn't even the worst place we stayed at. Maple Creek along the highway. I actually talked to someone about Maple Creek about this years later. Uh, but that hotel we stayed in, I like it just give you the willies essentially. And like I Maple Ma- Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. Yes, just on the highway though, and just on the north side of the highway. And if you ever, it's actually I think it's closed that hotel now, but it was the sketchiest hotel by far that I've ever stayed at. And I talked to someone from Maple Creek, and they're like, "You stayed there? Like no one stays there. That place is <laughs> disgusting." I'm like, "No, yeah, we we stayed there." So, yeah, it was a it was an interesting well. But you're on a bicycle, so are you going to bike another 15 kilometers to the next hotel? No, you take whatever you get kind of thing, so. You know what I shouldn't say? I've never stayed in a place like that because when I was a kid, my dad uh, took our family to our first Oiler game. Yep. Of course, we grew up in Saskatchewan, so it's a longer, you know, it's a yep. big thing. Yep. Like, And we were so excited to go. But I thought we'll just get a hotel when we get there. We ended up staying at the Cromdale. And down, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The Cromdale came down here like a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic. I think they destroyed the Cromdale. But I do remember my dad pushing a dresser in front of the door. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I never did that across Canada, but there's a couple of times probably should have. Yeah. Probably should have. There was another place in Regina I kind of stayed like that. My brother's like, no, no, I stayed there before. It's a great place. Like, yeah. It don't look like a great place. Oh, no. And then we get there and he's like, yeah, it's kind of run down since the last time I was here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So, but uh, so you bike across Canada, you come back to Husky. Yeah. And I worked at Husky for uh, five years and uh, a lot of interesting things I did there. Um, and it was a good place to work at. Uh, I ended up meeting my wife while I was working there. Uh, And that's what made me stay long-term, essentially. Um, But working at Husky was good because they had a lot of different projects and a lot of different groups. And uh, for a while, I got to focus on just problem wells. So any wells that were having issues, I got to look at them and then play with them, essentially, to see if you could come up with better ways to produce them, make them run for longer, produce more oil. Uh, So that was really interesting. Worked in the horizontal group for a while. So horizontal wells were just becoming a thing then, and I got to work on those. Uh, and then I got to reactivate wells that were shut in uh, for long periods of time and see if you can make a go of them. So there's a bunch of things that I got to do there that were, were very interesting. And then lots of good people that work there as well. So. so Husky was like, like to me, it's like that's where you wanted to work. Like that, it seemed to me like, like they would pay great. Uh, great benefits. Um, yes. They're big in the community. Yes. Their employees are always giving back. Like, you must have been pretty pretty excited working at Husky. Like, it must my, have been a pretty good time. My life. mother was proud. She was, was she? <laughs> yes, there you go. Finally, mom's proud. Uh, very stable uh, work environment and, and good people and obviously are well integrated into the community. So is it, and, you know, they're so big around the Lloyd area that as an engineer, you can do whatever job you want pretty much they do it a to z and you can and specialize on all the different types of work that they have there for sure so it was a great place to to work and learn and and uh so yeah i, I have nothing but good things to say about husky well i'm curious because you mentioned like you're, you're solving some problems and then you said horizontal drilling was just coming in tell us a little bit more about about that yeah so uh i'm trying to remember the exact timeline of when they started to drill horizontal wells you know there was the odd one before that but they really started going hard after horizontal wells in the late 2008 2010 time range uh companies like husky were just starting to drill lots of them how's that change things how's it so um having worked on them the biggest thing you run into with horizontal wells is in a vertical well you might only hit the zone for let's say three four or five meters total 
and inflow is a big issue around Lloydminster because you produce the sand. So it right. tends to plug or, or you have problems. With a horizontal well, all of a sudden, instead of contacting the zone for three or four or five meters, now you got hundreds of meters of contact with the formation. So the chance of you having low inflow or, or plugging issues goes way down, way down. And, and so from a production engineering perspective, the wells become a lot easier. Now the drilling is much more difficult because you have to feed your horizontal drill along that formation for hundreds of meters. And obviously that technology over time has gotten way better. But, you know, that's the challenge of it is the drilling part. Once you give it to the production engineer, it's way easier to produce, way simpler to produce, um, and the wells are more stable in general is how I put it. So that's why the horizontal wells uh, came out. And now they're drilling multilateral where they got not just one leg, but two, three, four, numerous legs all in the formation. So it's revolutionized the industry for sure um and that's why if you look at all the major producers and even in the mid-sized companies that's what they drill is horizontal wells so so like 90 percent yeah essentially almost all their drilling program is is horizontal for any development type of stuff for the they might use vertical for um you know if, if you have seismic over an area but you don't know what your zone looks like you might drill a vertical to see what's there before you drill your horizontals um, if you're trying to hold mineral rights uh, for later down the road you might drill a vertical there, there's some cases where you drill vertical but almost everything's gone horizontal uh, and then the other side of it too is if you can drill one horizontal instead of three or four verticals well then down the road you've got less lease uh, payments uh, to the landowners um, you have one well to abandon instead of three or four. So right. there's a r lot of reasons to drill horizontal for sure. That even makes sense to me. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. So when you're working at Husky, you're solving problems. Yes. Um, do you ever remember, like, do you remember um, how rewarding it was to solve, like, to solve one of those problems? Like a frustrating and rewarding. Yes. Yeah. So there was lots of times you failed, obviously. Uh, like you ever you take a well from like low barrels to like, huge barrels and so, so this is what actually got me interested in production engineering back in the Petrovira days was I was working on a well in Lone Rock that was drilled in 1948 and what Cedric used to get me to do when I first started out was I go through the whole well history so every rig report that what anytime that rig had been on that well since 1948 I documented what happened on every single one of those rig jobs and what I found was there was one report in 1948 that said they perforated a GP formation. So a formation, you know, depth-wise in the well, general petroleum GP formation. That's what was written in this one report. Every other report from that point on said it was a sparky. And I took it to Cedric and I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like it shows GP, but then sparky the rest of the time. And he's like, well, I guess we'll go in there and, and do a test to see whether it's GP or Sparky. So we went in there. I'd been perforating the GP, but for some reason it got lost. And ever since then, it was thought it was a Sparky well. And he's like, well, that makes a lot of sense because it doesn't perform like the rest of the wells around here. So we actually went in, plugged off the GP, perforated the Sparky, and it came on at 10 oil a day, which is a big well that's going to make a ton of money. And at that point, I was hooked. Like when I can make that, you know, and I'm a co-op student at the time. Right. I'm right. not even an engineer at the time. But once, once you're like, holy crap, I just, you know, like 10 cubes of oil a day at today's prices, $500 a cube. You know, you're talking about five grand a day that well made. Yep. Just from figuring out one thing and solving it. And so at that point I was hooked. Now you're talking about uh, at Husky Days and, and solving problems. The problem with trying, you know, 
trying to identify the problem is difficult and then trying to solve the problem is very difficult as well. So the amount of failure you have trying to solve problems, you know, it's very frustrating because you think you've got a solution and they try it on and it doesn't work. And you think many, you have a solution and then... How many, how many guys are working on that? Well, like who, so like so, what, how it worked at Husky back then was you'd have a production engineer, and then you have operators and rig guys, and myself, and so you try and coordinate between all those groups and try and brainstorm. Okay, we've got this problem. You know, is there any testing we we can do to confirm the problem? And then, what are some solutions? And at at that time, and and still to this day, your solutions may be good, they may not be good, but there's a bunch of different ones you can utilize out there to try and solve the problem, and you're trying to identify the characteristics of the well so you can find a solution to solve the problem and you've got a bunch of different people you're trying to work with and and like i said there was lots of failure you don't you know you, you don't bat 100 percent in heavy oil and that's that's the challenge of the lloydminster area and heavy oil but that's also the the um that's Strength. what draws people in yeah. is is it's not like you drill a well like in light oil where it just comes and you don't have to do anything like there's there's extreme challenges but it's very rewarding because you know, not every not everyone can do it, right? So, so like, does do they give you a certain amount of time to work on a well to get it? Well, yeah, they give you the well, and and, and you take like, a little bit of time and try and problem problem solve it, and you know, usually take a can't get it move days on or, yeah, days or weeks, and then you put a rig on it, and then you know it works or it doesn't work, and and you just you know keep working on them one by one and and try and solve problems. So, how long are you at Husky? Uh, five years, 2006 to 2011. So that's like, it's a great job. Yes. You're enjoying yourself. Yes. It's rewarding. Yes. Why leave? Uh, so what actually happened was my daughter was born in 2010. And uh, my wife's a veterinarian in, in town. and Drives a nice Nissan. Yes, she does drive a nice v Nissan, that's for sure. Um, but being a vet, it's like being a doctor. You have very little flexibility. And uh, what we realized quickly on with kids is someone needed to be flexible to make it work. And, uh, and she couldn't really. Um, like right. when you're a vet at work, emergencies come in, you're not leaving. You can't right. leave. When you're on call, you know, and you have to be on call because, you know, animals get sick in the it's middle of the night. Of the it's part yeah. of the job, right? So um, we had a hard discussion and, and uh, eventually decided that it made sense for me to try and go out on my own, have more flexibility so the family side worked. And that's why I went consulting on my own uh, in 2011, essentially. So you start a consulting company? Yeah, a uh, consulting company, and I was working on uh, little oil and gas companies, uh, helping them with the engineering side, and then also uh, eventually started becoming more disposal work as well. I uh, actually did a little bit of operating uh, in that time as well, uh, which I enjoyed and, and helped me down the road for sure, but uh, it slowly started to bleed into disposal uh, disposal works and disposal wells. Uh, there was little companies starting to spring up around Lloydminster who were starting to uh, be standalone disposal wells where oil companies had ship water to them and they'd dispose of it. And so I started doing a little bit of that work and that actually bled into me doing work in the potash industry for the disposal wells they had there. Uh, because in the potash world, uh, disposal wells are foreign to them. It's not something they deal with every day, and there wasn't a whole lot of expertise there. And so somehow my name got filtered over to the potash world, and I ended up working on disposal wells in the potash world for, for years. So, Okay, you have no idea how they got your your name uh, I actually think it was a wireline company that I've done some work with around Lloyd, and they were doing some work out there. 
And one of the guys on site's like, you know, we need some help with these. Do you know anyone? And they're like, actually, we do. We should call this guy. And and that's how I kind of started in the disposal uh, um, business in the potash industry. And then I did a bunch of different well work for the for the potash industry. But yeah, it's and it's a different world in potash compared to somewhere like Lloydminster. Lloydminster, you can drill down 500 meters pretty much anywhere around Lloyd, hit a zone that'll take water like you won't believe, and you don't even have to think or work at it. When you're working in the disposal, uh, in the potash industry, they don't have zones that are 500 meters below surface that you can dispose into. You end up drilling 1,500 meters into the dead wood. It's a lot tighter. It's not unconsolidated around here. There's a bunch of different challenges. And... The amount of water they want to dispose is just crazy. It's absolutely crazy how much this water they want to dispose. Around here, with like half a cube a minute, that would be a great disposal well. Down there, seven cubes a minute. Like the the size and scope of those disposal wells is just crazy. So it's just a different scale. So when you say down there, where are these? Uh, so Saskatoon down to Regina, okay. uh, over to the wards of Manitoba border. I did work in all those uh, all those kind of areas. So in your hands-on guy, were you traveling down there too to see for yourself? No, yeah, I'd travel down there for sure. Uh, I actually remember uh, Bill Kosh and I. I had him help me on some wells down there, and we actually took a, a plane out of Lloydminster and went down to uh, where was it? east of Regina somewhere because we calculated how long it'd take us to drive there. Like it was going to be a full day of driving and a hotel and all the rest of it. Or we could, you know, get on yeah. a Cessna and, and, and fly I, down there. I was there. doing this for flexibility and now I'm <laughs> spending my whole day driving. Yeah, yeah, no. So, And we were right up against the Manitoba border. So we flew into a little airstrip just by the mine and then, then drew up to the mine and then flew back. So, uh, yeah, it was all over. I'd have to go down there. Well, and as soon as you're consulting, you have to meet the people on site and, and discuss you know what their challenges are what you're going to do um the one mine site they had uh, a bunch of freeze like the hardest job i ever did probably the hardest job i'll ever do is they had 24 freeze wells around a mine shaft so they freeze the ground before they they dig their shaft so that the water doesn't come pouring in and they circulate super cool brine down these wells to freeze the ground 500 meters below surface. So you get water coming in as they're, as they're sinking their shaft. But they forgot what to do about these wells after the fact. And they built a, like a 200-foot cement structure over top of it called a frame. And, and these wells were inside there. So you couldn't move a service rig on there to abandon them. So we had to do all sorts of funky things, uh, coil, uh, we had to do a little uh, heli portable wireline skid to get down inside there to abandon these wells. That uh, so it was, it took months of work to do something like that. So it was it was kind of crazy. Is it kind of the opposite of oil. It's it's completely different. Essentially, the challenges are 180. You know, you don't deal with any of this stuff in the oil field at all. It was just completely different problems. I, I sense more that challenging. you love the challenge. Oh, I do for sure. I like I like unique problems and trying to solve them for sure. That's that's what I love doing for sure. So. You're the opposite of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> like, who wants problems? Like you. It like, seems like you you really thrive on them. Yeah, uh, for the most part, there's days where, you know, you want to throw things and walk out and, and you know, I got to take the dog for a walk because I'm pissed off and, and you know, but but I like the challenge of, of, you know, having a hard problem and trying to solve it for sure, so. So... How long did you have your consulting, or is, is that is that where Original Oil originated? So consulting, uh, I pretty much consulted uh, up until 2015 when Original Oil was started. Uh, me and a group of 
you know, people uh, started up Original Oil essentially. And, and from that time on, time on, I was mostly Original Oil, although I did go back consulting a little bit during the 2018 to to uh, COVID years um, when things got really bad in the oil field for sure. So, um, but once I started, you know, went into original oil, started up and then, and then started to run it, uh, that takes up most of your time for sure. So, so how's original oil come about? Like, like, who, uh, like who are your partners in there? And, and so why, why, why do you guys decide to do this? So Tyler Scott and I were actually talking, uh, he was looking for something to help him with some wells and, and uh, we started chatting and, and, I'm like, you know, what I really want is I, I wouldn't mind getting my own wells, essentially. And so him and I started discussing, and then Original Oil came about after that. And and we found some people to put some money in and, and started up Original Oil. So You make it sound so easy. Eh, we just went out and got some money, you know. Well, you kind of, <laughs> you know, in 2015, the downturn in 2014 had happened. And, and at that time, we thought, well, you know, what happens in oil is it... it you know, it goes through a downturn and then it comes up on the other side. And if you start buying wells and properties when it's down, that's that's the opportune time to do it. You know, especially when you're starting out because wells and property are cheap. Yep. And when it's up, you can't afford to. But when it's down, you can you can start picking stuff up. So that was the plan right from the beginning was to pick up wells and property and, and look at drilling down the road. And, and then once the price came up, you sell. So that was that was always the, the plan for sure. Um, now the downturn ended up being a lot worse and a lot longer than what we thought, but but that was the mindset in, in 2015 for sure. So, so 2018, things things tanky. You kind of go back consulting. How bad were things, Dustin? Well, at the end of 2018, what happened was, uh, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, the government actually started putting restrictions on how much oil pr companies in Alberta could produce mm -hmm. because the differential was greater than the price. And so we had negative pricing for two months. And I actually sold the oil, original oil sold oil for those uh, at the start of that, I think it was October or November that year. We actually sold some oil at the beginning of the month before I realized it was negative pricing, essentially. And uh, and I actually still, well, for a year or two after that, a company would send me an invoice for the oil I sent them. I think I owed them five grand for the oil I shipped them. You're not the first person we talked to. No, and so they sent they me an invoice that. for five grand, and and I never did pay it. <laughs> 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 As a small company, you're like, I'm not, you know, I already got my, you know, I already paid for the trucking to get it down there. I lost my shirt, you know. This is 2018. This is 2018. The first. This isn't even before during the pandemic. No, no, that was before COVID. There was two months there. And that's when the Alberta government came out and said, put restrictions on how much oil all these companies could produce uh, because the differential was greater than the price of oil in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And, uh, and so those were two months. And, and coming into that, um, you, like, there's just no way to prepare for that. And then you're like, what the hell do we do? You know, you're a small company. Um, and obviously it turns everything upside down in your company, your finances, and, and it's, you know, beyond difficult is how I put it. And there's lots of days where you don't know how you're going to make it through essentially. And, and so that happened in 2018. What, what, what were those days like, Dustin? Like, cause your demeanor has completely changed talking about those days where oh, I, like life, like long like days, you still have kids. Oh yeah. You know, your wife is still a veterinarian, yeah. but, but those days well you like, feel like a you know a failure essentially you know, like you don't know how you're going to make it through and uh you know i 
you kind of lean on experiences of someone like like my dad. He just about went bankrupt in the 90s when they had five straight years of drought in Helmond. Just about lost all the farm, the farmland, and all he did, you know. And and I've heard him say it numerous times. You just go out and, and get to it. Do what you can and, and go as hard as you can. He, you know, at that point time, he went back trucking long haul just to pay the bills. And, and he worked until... It got paid off essentially, right. and uh, you do what you have to do. You do what you have to do, and so uh, as an oil company, you, you know, you just do what you have to do to make it through. There, there was there, was there a lot of um, resentment towards the Canadian government? Like, was there a lot of like? Because I, I remember bringing Tracy Kay in even during COVID, and and the biggest thing he said to me was, "Why don't they just let us work? Yeah, like just let us work for crying out loud." Well, like we're I, not asking for any special treatment. We just want to work. I, I think it was right about then where you suddenly grow up and you're like, oh, like the consequences of the, re- you know, the real world has serious consequences for your industry, you know. And so when they're talking about, you know, you no Northern Gateway, no uh, Eastern mm-hmm. Pipeline, no, no, you know, all this stuff just got kiboshed and you're like... But the differential went negative. This you whole guys town, are, you could feel it. Yes. Well, I, and so if the oil companies are getting negative pricing, you know, the service companies go dead, essentially, because no one's doing any work. Uh, you know, there's no money coming in, so the money going out of the oil companies is minimal. Like, it's just an awful situation. Now, some oil companies hedged, and, and they did okay, but it just kills the industry. And you go, well, you know... That the the problem with that is it wasn't even the it wasn't even the oil price that was doing that that was the differential and where that differential comes in is if you got too much oil production versus how much you can get out of the country the differential just keeps going wider yeah. and wider and wider and that's why they put restrictions on how much oil the oil, large oil companies could produce was to try and bring that number down so the differential would shrink again but you know when you start can't you know no more tankers off the uh, off the west coast and limiting how many pipelines you know making it almost impossible for companies to put in new pipelines to the coast um like if you look at a country such as canada and you look at western canada if you had a government that was was on top of things and wanted to grow your country and grow your industries you go well where would you want to ship your oil from western canada the primary, you go, well, the West Coast, because you got the whole Pacific region over there. You got China, you got Taiwan, you've got, you got all these countries that are yep. growing that want your product. Japan, another one. Like, you've got all these countries over there. So you want to get it there. Well, would you want to ship it to Vancouver? Mm, probably not. You don't want all your oil going through your one of your largest cities in your country. You'd want it to go to Kitimat or, or somewhere yep. somewhere else so that you can get it out of the country. And they killed that all. But if you if you actually want to run something, that's where you'd ship it to because you want it out of the country. And, and instead, we killed all that. And you go, well, where's that differential money going? Well, all that money goes to companies in the States because they're buying our oil for cheap. And then they're turning around and shipping it out of the country and making that differential. So instead of that money coming into companies around Lloydminster, around Alberta, around Saskatchewan, all that profit, $10, $15 a barrel, which is strictly profit that would get pushed back into our economies, into our communities, goes down to the states and lines someone else's pockets and never mind that the government gets 12 percent of that or whatever royalty you know they get all that a percentage of that so the governments are losing huge on that as well which then you know you're talking about schools and hospitals and all the rest of it the the communities and the Mm -hmm. governments lose out on that as well so that's that's the first moment where all of a sudden you know you kind of wake up 
Okay, we're not even into COVID yet. So I'll give you a little break to tell you about Superior Water. Superior Water is proud to provide you with the purest drinking water possible. And I drink it because I like the taste. And I believe it is superior to anyone else's water. I think it's the best water in Lloydminster. And at just $3 a jug, you get a consistent taste. And... Uh, don't forget, we got a hot weekend coming up in summer yet. Ice for the Crown Royal is just $2 a bag. They have two locations in Lloydminster. You can visit them beside Sheepskin Loft on 57th Avenue. And if you need help with those big blue jugs, you won't have to ask for it. You can also visit their coin-operated location beside 7-Eleven, just off Highway 17 South. That's Superior Water. Water is what they do, and they do it well. Okay, just before we get into COVID here, yes. COVID years, you also have these... I'll call them what I think they are, dummies running around blocking railways and doing all kinds of stuff. That ain't helping either. No. Well, and that's not just oil industry there. That's that's all the industries, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So that, that affects everything. Uh, and so what happened in the oil industry when you start having these huge differentials where, where you can't send your product by pipe, which makes sense, is you start shipping it by rail, which doesn't make sense long term either because you have way more spills and way more accidents i came out of the vancouver the one time when we drove the old highway uh, north of hope uh through the i think it's the fraser river valley there and there's trains of oil going down that river valley to vancouver how does and that make sense well one train derailment you got oil cars in the fraser river that end up at vancouver like yeah. what the hell are we doing right um so you get those protesters that are blocking off essentially the economic pipelines of the com country um, whether it's pipelines or or your rail lines so yeah that's so you ever start asking yourself what the heck am i doing like, may I just get out of this? Well, and I, I tell you what, I know guys that have left Canada to go down to the States or go elsewhere because, you don't, you know, you get paid an honest dollar for your product and you well, don't have all these the hurdles. Money. Yes. And so it's, you know, there are other places in the world and I know people, I've known businessmen who've left to do that for those reasons. So the world needs oil. Like we always say this, the world needs oil. We want it to be Canadian oil. Yes. Because we do it more ethically than anybody else. Yes, well, and safety and environmentally. Yeah. Like all of it, without yeah. a doubt. So protesters show up in their cars to protest. Hopefully it's Canadian gasoline used from, made from Canadian oil in the running through those engines because if you gotta if you gotta use it we gotta use it like well, we have to like, well, and not only there's, that there's nothing better to replace it, it uh, i always look at like if you look at lloyd minster and the oil we produce here it's heavy oil which like 60 percent of it is is uh essentially good for asphalt if you separate it out if you talk to the refinery like a, a good chunk of it 50 60 percent is asphalt and we have one of the biggest asphalt you know plants yeah. around even if we get rid of gasoline and diesel cars, we're still going to need to drive on something. And we're actually going to need more of it because the cars are so much heavier. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right as well. So. so, Okay, so you get through 2019. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, well, you, you think know, in 2019, <laughs> we're, we, we don't know where we're headed yet, but... Well, and I, I think as an oil company, sometimes you're like, well, we've been through the low. There's got to be an up on the other side. And then COVID comes along and it, it just... It smashes you again, essentially. Okay, how and do you survive it? Um, so as an oil company, what you essentially do is anything that has operating costs, you shut in. So if it makes a lot of water, if you have to spend money on propane, anything like that, and your best wells you leave running, and you just try and stockpile oil. Because we had three months of negative pricing then, and, and you just try to hold on. 
You still have to sell that oil. You're selling it at a loss. No. You, you stockpiled. You All we did was fill tanks full of oil. You didn't have to sell? You didn't have contracts to fill or anything like that? Well, see, the big companies do. And as a small company, you might have contracts, but you're so little that if you just stop shipping oil, the, the marketers will essentially allow you to get away with it because... You're not worth the time and energy, as right. I put it. Your contracts are small enough. So you're sneaking under the radar. Yeah. You fly under the radar. Yeah, that's the bonus of being a small company is you can kind of do that and get away with it um, because otherwise it would have bankrupted us for sure. And I think they probably know that a little bit as well as a small company is if you shipped what you said you were going to ship on months where it goes negative, you'll just bankrupt yourself. So you lean on your dad at that time too again? Who's helping you out through COVID and oh, getting I don't know. I, I lifting probably, your spirits and stuff? Yeah, you talk to different people in the industry, people you're working with. Everyone's in the same boat because nothing's moving. You know, everyone's cutting to the bone, releasing people because um, there's no work, essentially. So, how, how, how big was Original Oil? How many employees did you have to let go? Well, so we're, we're not a big company at all. Uh, there was a lady in the office who, you know, she'd still do a little bit of work. Uh, there was myself. I actually went into the field and didn't so operating. I had an operator at that point that uh, he helped a farmer out for a while. Um, hey, if you can do this, can you yeah. do it? Yeah, well, and he approached me. He said, look, you can't pay me. I'll go... You know, I got a farmer that's looking for some help. I'll go help him for a bit. And I said, yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. And we'll see how it looks on the other side, right? So. Holy crap, that's difficult, though, eh? Yeah, well, like, you just. Like, those conversations, not easy conversations. No, right? and it's not fun. No. For sure, so. Okay, so you make it through COVID. Let's skip through COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Let's never talk about it again. When do things start to get better? Well, so what happened after COVID is even though prices came back after COVID, they were still low for a long period of time. Yeah, they were still like know, a like, barrel was still like we joked about it here. You could still go get a bucket of chicken. Yes. It wasn't, you know. For a year, it was really bad. And then 2021, uh, the prices really spiked up there for a bit. And that's, that's what's starting to straighten everything out. And we needed a spike in prices just to make things good for a bit. So, so. you got your stockpiles. Well, and so what happened after those three months is as soon as those were over, you start selling them. Even though the price is low, you got to sell them because you need some cash flow. So right. you don't keep your stockpiles around for a year They're or anything. Gone. They're Even gone. The, you didn't have anything to sell when it was at its peak sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. You didn't have those stockpiles. Either. No. You'd and so still... the peak comes along and, and you start selling, you know, and you start making some money and, and things are a lot better at that point for sure. So Hire that same guy back? Oh yeah, he came back and he's still operating for me and we have a great relationship. So So how 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 many employees does Original Oil have today? Well, so we've got an operator up north and we got two down south. Uh, my operator up north, he likes working every day, so he just works every day. Okay. And then yeah. you got myself and a lady in the office, so uh and then you hire some people out to do different jobs uh, on a part-time basis, so so where do you, where do you want to go with original oil? Like, well, I, I, that's that's the story of our original oil and where it came from. Uh, we're still a small company that you know. You hoping somebody coming along buys you? Is well, that... I, I, essentially, what you do, most small companies around Lloyd uh, are trying to build up, make themselves look great for when the price spike comes, and then you sell. So that's usually what what small companies do in general, and and we're probably no different than that. At some point, you look at selling. So, so we mentioned Dustin about how effective oil is and building hospitals and mm -hmm. building playgrounds yes. for crying out loud and and you know it supports this country mm -hmm. how frustrating is it for you when you when you see climate activists 
you know, running down the oil industry that just don't understand it. Well, there, there's two things. You know, my experience in being uh, in the oil and gas industry as, as uh, a president's one thing, but as an engineer, it's another thing. So I see people that are so confident about what they're saying when they have no idea about what's actually involved. Um, like I, I spoke about the power grid and, and trying to run, you know, wind power. Well, well, you can supply this much wind power into the grid. Yeah, but when there's no wind power, something has to take the place of that power that was being provided, yep. and it has to come on in an instant. I know as an engineer, that's that's a technical challenge, and you have to have the infrastructure in place that can do it. When it comes to oil and gas, like, oh, no more oil and gas, we're going to restrict, and it's like, you know, we, you got plastic in your, in your phones, in your vehicle. Like, plastic's used in all sorts of stuff at this point, tons of stuff. You've got asphalt on your roads. Um, when it comes to, you know, natural gas heating our homes in the wintertime, you know, can you imagine if your house, everything was electrical and the power grid goes down and you're 40 below? Like, what it the hell happens Texas. then? It would be Texas. Oh, you'd have dead people within a day. Exactly. And especially if your cars were electric, because then like, it can't even Texas. start. To, imagine here. Yes. No, absolutely. You'll kill people for sure. And so, you know, <clears throat> when you hear some people you know, say things like that, like, oh, we need to phase this out. And it's like, you have no practical knowledge of how that's going to work. And I'm not people said that. Exact oh, I know. Thing. I know for sure. It, it's, it's complete foolishness, complete foolishness. Well, if you want to see how effective wind is, um, I have a buddy, Brian Zinchuk at pipelineonline.ca. You can check uh, him out and he reports on wind power almost daily. Now he's almost become completely, you know, he's down in Estevan where things are really moving faster than I think they're moving here towards yep. change. And he he reports on just how much wind power is coming out daily. Yes. And what it actually could power. And guess what? When it ain't turning, it ain't anything. It's nothing. Well, and as an engineer, you always look at worst case scenarios. So you always have to plan for the worst case scenarios. So let's say, you know, 20, even if you have 20% of your grid, some of the time being supplied by solar and wind, you have to plan for the day when it's zero because there's going to be days when it's zero and you have to supply that whole power without solar and wind. So with there, no natural no, gas, what's going to fill that in? No, no, absolutely. And so natural it, gas or nuclear have to be part of the solution or, or coal. Like you need something reliable that can fill that gap. But then you go, the more wind and solar we do, the more we need to fill in if it goes to zero with something that's sitting there. Right. So are you going to buy that infrastructure and have it sit there? Which what, what company wants to do that? If you're a natural gas generator, uh, generating company, would you have a plant just sit there doing nothing? So until that, they need it. Yeah. Until they need it. Like, are you going to spend that money? I, I doubt it. And so that's the real challenge of it. Um, and it, it goes on to the oil and gas industry as a whole, because it's, it's just, there's no way to, you know, you look at your large machinery, how are you going to run battery-powered equipment? It makes zero sense. There's no way to do it, yeah. essentially. And I'm not against wind and solar. They have their applications, and I think they're more local, you know, on an individual case basis, not on a large load of a grid. But, you know, if you got a, a solar panel, I've got sheep, and I run a fencer that runs off solar. That makes a ton of sense. Um, some of your wind applications on a local level make a ton of sense. But having huge amounts of your, your power supply for your whole province coming from it makes zero sense. So, Well, Tracy K. speaking of Tracy, he sent me a picture of vehicles leaving Yellowknife. He's like, guess what? These aren't electric vehicles. No. Leaving Yellowknife. Well, how what far if every, would you make it? How far would you make How? What if every one of these vehicles had to be electric? Yes. Like, you're going to put a grid 
somewhere between Hay River and Yellowknife so that they can stop in the middle of a fire and charge for four hours? Well, and Things don't make sense that way. And Not at this point. Well, and what you always want to do is um, if you have everything running off one system, that's a very bad way to do things because there's no redundancy. And if that system ever fails, you're screwed. What you want is multiple different systems. And so, you know, in Canada, for example, you have electrical uh, and most people have some electrical power of some sort, you know, heaters and stuff like that. But you also have natural gas. So if your natural gas system fails, you still got electrical. Your electrical system fails, you still got natural gas. So in the wintertime, when it gets to minus 40, you know, and some people have wood fireplaces and all the rest of it too, but but you want some redundancy there because at minus 40 will yeah. kill people in a very short period of time. So you want some redundancy. You don't want one thing running everything because if it ever fails, you're screwed. That seems like such common sense, Dustin. Why can't they get that? What What do we have to do? to get that through to not only the zealots out there, but the politicians. Well, see, the, the problem is the world as a whole has been sold on this idea that we're going to wreck the earth if we don't bring down CO2. And they go, no matter what, we have to get there. And so they don't look at the problems with the solutions they're proposing. They're just going, there's one problem and we need to solve it. It doesn't matter about anything else. It's almost like COVID. COVID is the ultimate problem. Nothing else matters. We're going to lock everything down, close everything down, kill our economy because this is the one problem. And they're doing the same thing with, with CO2. They go, well, this is, a, this is the only problem that matters. Nothing else matters. But, you know, if you had a group of engineers sitting there looking at that problem, they go, we can't do this. Like, you're, you're literally going to kill people if we keep going down this path. Somebody's got to be telling them this. Why are they ignoring it? Some, there has to be somebody. Well, now you're getting into conspiracy theory. Well, and, uh, <laughs> well I just don't understand why. I, I don't they know. Would've... Like it's not, it's not a hard problem to look at and go, we're going to cause a huge amounts of problems going the path we're down, especially in a place like Canada that gets down to 40 below with long distances between people. Like, would I ever buy an electric car for my wife and kids and send them off to Edmonton in the middle of winter? There's not a chance. There's no. not a chance because I know if that car ever quits. There's no way to heat themselves, you, you know. Yeah. Like, would I want them going out in 40 below? Not a chance. Okay, so from the other standpoint, uh, Dustin, they're saying the technology's on the way. Is that, like, so? don't, don't worry. Uh, by 2035, we'll, we'll have everything up and running. So, no. so here's the th I've actually been involved with technology my, my whole career, developing new technology, trialing new technology, and what you learn is... The practical application of solutions is far is very very difficult, and you can have one failure out of your whole solution. So you got a product, and you go, "This product's great. It's going to solve this, 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 this." If it fails in one one part, it won't work. That's all it takes. The reason why we use natural gas, the reason why we use gasoline, the reason why we use diesel, is because it's past all those thresholds. Tried and tested. Tried and tested, and that's why it works. Now you go, oh, battery cars, they're going to solve all our problems. Well, no, they're going to cause other problems. Can they, can they go long distances in the winter? Well, no. What happens if a car starts on fire? What do you do about that? Well, it's a huge issue because you can't put it out. Like, there's all these little problems that creep up. They go, oh, hydrogen is going to be the solution. It's like, yeah, you sure about that? Like, you've got to generate the hydrogen. Then you've got to safely uh, have it. You've you got to build the infrastructure. And then you've got to use it in a vehicle where it's safe. Right, like those are not easy problems to solve, and it has to be cost effective. It has to be as cost effective as gasoline and diesel. And remember, you have right. to produce this. And so, 
well. Okay, so a hydrogen car, let's say it's safe and it works and we have the infrastructure. What happens if it's double or triple the price of, of diesel or gasoline? Are you still using it? What are you going to do to your economies if everyone has to pay for two or three times the price? I've seen studies where they talk about using nuclear power to create electricity to make steel. And it's only going to double or triple the price of steel. Are you going to be able to compete with China who uses coal fire to make their steel? Yeah, what cost? At what cost? So, exactly. So they go, well, this, there's all these solutions coming down the road. Well, I know technology. And just because you think you have solutions that are coming down the road doesn't mean you have solutions coming down the road. There's so many obstacles to overcome. That's putting the... That's putting the cart before the ox. Yes. Okay. What about um, now we're seeing CO2 go back into the ground? Pipelines that put CO2 back in the ground. What's your thoughts on that? Well, there's a, and you know, just putting it back in the ground, I'm like, eh, whatever. But there's some practical applications for CO2 going into oil reservoirs to boost production. That makes a lot more sense to me. Um, you know, just stripping the CO2 out to put it back in the ground, you know, you're just adding I, I, expense. I can't get it through my head. What, why, why that makes sense? I, I can't. Well, it, it's just. It's just a storage. Yeah. It's, it's just like when we, like, I think nuclear has changed, but we used to imagine these big rods and everything, right? But we've got to bury them somewhere for a yeah. hundred thousand years before we can actually. Well, like, and I, see, see, but it always, it's always going to come back. Yes. Well, and like I said, if you're actually going to use it for something, that makes a lot more sense. Like if you're going to boost oil production out of a field, and, and um, I was loosely associated with that back in the Husky days. They were trialing that out, and it seemed to be very effective. The biggest biggest downside of it was the cost of the CO2 because there wasn't the infrastructure to, you know, you have to truck it everywhere and all the rest of it. But, but something like that would make a lot of sense. Just doing something to put CO2 in a cavern somewhere. Can you yeah. just buy credits? <laughs> <laughs> then you can fly wherever you want and do whatever you want. Yes, yeah, well, if you buy credits. So, as a farmer, what do you think of that? Like, what's your dad think of this? This. Well, the, this? the problem with CO two is I sit there and go, okay, so what? What? What do you want the atmospheric level of CO two to be? And then, okay, so then this is a challenge I always get into in the modeling side of it. I have been involved with modeling on the reservoir side for oil and gas. And the problem you run into is the complexity of the problem and the amount of unknowns. You're trying to model the temperature of the whole world, the whole world on a computer program. And what you find out, and I know this from, from dealing with that, is as you add more and more and more variables into a problem, the harder it becomes to actually model. And a little change in one variable here or there will change everything, will absolutely change everything. Never mind all the unknowns. So, you know, I was reading the other day that they still can't model cloud cover over the earth. So their models aren't taking into account cloud cover. Well, that's a pretty important feature. If you're going solar. Well, right. well, well solar, but they're trying to predict future, right, future right. temperatures, right? right? If you can't Do even you... predict, if you can't model the cloud cover, how can you predict? But the problem is once you get so complex, you actually can't model it. And they go, well, it's science. No, it's not science. It's a computer program that models things. And there's no way to take all the variables into account. Well, isn't that why they eliminated half of the weather? 
that we've had from the first hundred years when they started measuring it because it just didn't add up. It didn't yes. add up to what they wanted it to add up to. Yes. Well, and then I go back to, okay, so what do you want the CO2 in the atmosphere to be? Right. It's been higher than this in the past. It gets down to about 150 and everything on the planet dies. What level do you actually want the CO2 to be? Do you want it to go back to just to 1900 levels? And what makes you think that's the right level for the atmosphere? Because it's been higher in the past. Because the computer says so. Dustin, thank you. We could go on. I feel like we go on and on. You And I just get really, really frustrated because I see, like, common sense is just out the window on a lot of this stuff. Yes. But I will ask you one more question. And uh, it is, it has to do with if Pierre Polyev wins the election, he's talking about there won't be any more carbon tax. Mm-hmm. We'll get rid of it completely. Um, we've had people on the show say, if you do that, you'll collapse the economy. There's so many people that rely on that now. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, on the I, carbon tax and, and where, what you'd like to see? Like, do you think he's got to fa- does it just phase out to, uh, to take care of that? Uh, what? See, I, I don't know on the practical application of phasing it out or anything like that. I look around at the communities and the amount of people that are struggling month to month, you know, with the, between the carbon tax driving up the cost of everything and the interest rate going up and people on their mortgages and loans and all the rest of it, you know, there's people struggling on the money side for sure. And, uh, you know, an ever increasing carbon tax is just going to add more and more burden to everyone. So, you know, I don't, I don't see how you can't reduce some of that. You have to reduce some of that just to keep people living a, a decent lifestyle and, uh, and you know stop people leaving the country essentially you know like the u.s doesn't have a carbon tax you know what and they never will and neither does they china never stand for it and neither does china right like yeah. india like there's all these countries that don't have one and that we're going to lead the way yeah with 1.5 with our 1.5 no like we're just going to kill our CO2. economy and and make people's lives miserable so no i, I think it has to happen and uh and you need to be able to open up private industry to, you know, you got to simplify the regulatory process to open it up so people can actually do projects on a larger scale in this country again. So with the price of oil today, what did I say it was? 63? Yep. 63. Shouldn't this area be, and we've had some nice rain, our mm-hmm. farmers are doing well. Yep. Shouldn't, should we be humming along better than we are? Like, it seems like it's it's okay. It, it's okay uh, out here. Um, but does it seem like... It doesn't feel like it did in 2002, let's say. Okay, so the, the difference between 2002... Well, 2002, we shouldn't say that because there was a drought in 2002. Yeah. 2004, 2005. Yeah, so I, I was uh, obviously engineering back then, and it was different then, and, and it'll never go back to that. Um, not that there won't be uh, wells being drilled and stuff being done around here, but back then, all the wells were vertical, and there was a huge amount of wells. You're taking all of that servicing, all those, all the services that are required for those, and now take, let's say, three or four of those verticals and turn it into one horizontal. So now your amount of wells, it's still producing the same amount of oil, but you got one well instead of three or four, or maybe even eight. So now you've got way less wells, and the wells are less problematic, so you need way less services because of that. So things are doing fairly well around Lloyd at the moment. It's just never going to go back to the crazy days, I would say, of like 2004. You happy with it the way it is, though? Yeah, if it could stay here for a while, that'd be great, quite honestly, at this price. It's always up, like you mentioned, it's always up. It's It's always down. As an oil company, it's such a different... it's such a different mindset or a different set of circumstances for a company because your your revenue follows that price and uh, 
and at a moment's notice it can go to zero uh, as it has a couple of times and then it spikes up and there and there's no way to predict it so you're you're at the whim of, of something completely out of your control and, and it makes things very challenging for sure well I hope the up is as long as the down was oh, God, because be that nice. was terrible nobody wants to go back to that yeah yeah for sure but thanks again Dustin Newman president of original oil can't thank you enough for your yeah, time thank you Kurt and uh, We'll be back in September. Tracy Kay will be uh, back with us, of course. And as far as Live with Kurt Price goes, we're back tomorrow. And we're going to talk about the uh, Border City, the Border Town Hog Chapters toy run that they've got going on. Their three organizers are going to come see us. So we'll have a big show uh, for you tomorrow. And don't forget, we're also heading out, taking a meal out uh, to the Kids Scotty area, out to your area uh, tomorrow. And uh, we look forward to doing that. So keep those nominations coming in for Meals in the Fields.